Why don't we just take a moment to uh, breathe deeply. Just let out the adrenaline and the anxiety and the whatever it is that we're feeling. Jesus, fill our minds with you and your love now. Amen. So it is very, very wonderful to see you all. Lovely to see those of you who are online as well. And uh, it's pretty emotional coming out of this, isn't it? I found, I found it quite emotional being back in person, seeing people, um, realizing what we've been through. And I've been praying a lot this week, agonizing, well, really for the last two weeks, as I knew we were coming out of this, I thought, <sighs> my prayer was, Jesus, what do you want to say to your people when we meet in person for the first time again in this sort of soft launch with those who are uh, only fully vaccinated here? And next week, of course, everybody's welcome, uh, vaccinated and unvaccinated. But I was saying to Jesus, what do, you, what, what do you want to say to us? And um, I was drawn to John 13 and this text. And here's what I want, what I think Jesus wants to say to us. Coming out of lockdown, coming into this new season, what Jesus wants you and me to do uh, is to be a people of love. That's it, right? Like we can think of, and, and there have been lots of people thinking about strategies and plans and what are we going to do and contingencies and re-engineering the air conditioning to increase the air quality and worrying about this and that. And look, all of that is good. But Jesus is saying to us this morning, what I want you to do is to be a people of love. I want you to love each other. I want you to love the city. I want you to love the world. I want you to love each other. I want you to serve because that's what love looks like. And so John 13 uh, was the passage that just was impressed on me. And it came to me as we've been, uh, some of us here have been reading uh, Dallas Willard's book, A Life Without Lack, journeying through Psalm 23. And um, that's spoken very deeply to all of us, I think, who've been in the little book club. And it's spoken very deeply to me. And, and Willard has a section in that book on, on John 13. And so I'd commend that to you if you want to read it. If you, I know a number of you bought the book. And uh, if you want to go and have a look at that section, it's pretty profound. Um, John 13, um, if you've been around church a while, it's pretty familiar, right? Here's the deal. It's the night before Passover. It's the end of Jesus' life. He knows he's going to die. He's heading towards the cross. And he gets his disciples together for a Passover meal, the most significant meal in the Jewish calendar of any year. And they're all hanging around. And, uh, and the text starts with some amazing comments about Jesus. It was just before Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to his father. So uh, this bit here, the hour in John's gospel really typically means the cross. He knows the time of his death is coming, right? And, 
And then it says this amazing thing, having loved his own who were in the world, like he loved them to the end. Um, like what does that mean? Well, it means nothing is going to stop Jesus' love for his people. He's going to see it through. He's going to see through his love for his disciples, for the world, and that's going to cost him everything. And he knows that because he's, he's been reading the scriptures all his life, and he knows from Isaiah 53 and other parts in the Old Testament that the path laid before him as Israel's Messiah was to suffer and to die, and he's going to do that. So here's the thing that I took from that for you and for me. Jesus is going to love you to the end. That's pretty good. Like, he's going to love you to the end. Like, there's nothing you and I can do that can make Jesus love us any less. And there's nothing that you and I can do that can make Jesus love us anymore. And nothing that this world can throw at us that can actually interrupt that flow of love that Jesus has for you and for me. So let's look at what that looks like. Uh, in this text, uh, in, in John 13, the, what, what happens then is all the disciples are sitting and they've, they've started eating. And then Jesus notices something. And maybe he smelt it. He noticed that no one had washed their feet. And washing feet was a, a a critical thing when you came in, particularly when you came in to eat, you reclined at the floor, your feet uh, were near the, the nose of you, the people sitting next to you. And it was very important to wash your feet, but no one had washed their feet. And you can kind of imagine the disciples coming in and, uh, and looking around and going, oh, I'll slip my sandals off at the door and I'll sit down and I'm wondering who's going to wash the feet around here. Well, it's not going to be me. You know, when someone asks a question in a group and uh, you all don't make eye contact because you know, you don't want to be the person who's dobbed in. I, I think there was a bit of that. It's like, well, someone's going to do it, but it's not because it was a horrible job. Uh, it's normally in, in, a, in a household of the time. It was the job that the person at the bottom of the social hierarchy would do. The, not If there was a slave in the house, it would be the slave. If there were multiple slaves, it would be the female slave. If there were multiple female slaves, it would be the one who was at the bottom of the female slave pecking order who would get the job of washing feet. And then Jesus, knowing that he's going to love them to the end, and this is just before he's going to die, he looks around and he goes, okay, I'll wash your feet. So he washes their feet. So here's the question. What is, why did he wash their feet? And how is this love? See, often in, uh, the, the, um, in the church calendar, when we remember this, we think this is an example of humility. So foot washing is this great example, because Jesus says we should follow his example. We say, well, we've got to be humble. You go, yeah, 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 humble, but the, the, the essence of what Jesus is doing is not humility. The essence of what he's doing is love, but how is washing his feet love? Well, it's love because love equals service. He actually meets their needs. You see, uh, they actually needed their feet washed. If you and I took our shoes and socks off now, 
you've probably only had them on for like an hour or two. <laughs> and maybe you, you'd have a bit of, you know, your feet might be a little smelly, but you don't really need your feet washed because you probably washed them before you got here when you showered last week. Um, oh, sorry, this is, we're out of lockdown now. No, when you showered this morning. Um, we don't, so we don't, but there, it was a real need. And so what Jesus does is he meets their real need. That's what love does. And this is very different to how we often think of love in our culture. We think of love as a bunch of feelings. Love is a particularly strong attraction that I have to you or to someone else. Now, that can be part of love. But the essence of love is rolling up your sleeves, finding a need in somebody else, and then with the resources that you have, meeting that need. <laughs> That's what Jesus says. That's love. And you go, okay, that's really cool. Um, that, that's, that's cool. That's a, that's a great thing. Look what he says, though. Um, do, you, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Uh, now that I, your teacher... Have and Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set an example that you should do as I have done for you. He's not saying we need to have a foot washing ministry. What's he saying? He's saying we've got to serve each other in love as an expression of love. That's what we've got to do. So when we, as we come out of lockdown, as we enter this new season of life, what Jesus is saying to you and to me is roll up your sleeves, look around and see somebody who has a need and then meet that need. And then find another person and meet that need. One of the, one of the fascinating things Willard says, and I mentioned this in an email update a couple of weeks ago, was you can't love everybody. Can you? I mean, you just can't love everybody because you don't, you, you, you know, you only know typically about 150 people and you have an inner group with that of about 50 or 60 who become your closer little tribe. And then you have a group of about 15 who are your, your more intimate team. And then within that, you have about five who are your immediate source of support. And then you probably have one, uh, well, actually on average, uh, one and a half significant uh, primary partners and the one and the half is because men tend to just have one close partner. Women have two, their husband and then their best friend. So you can't love everyone, but you got to love somebody. Love is specific. It's not a generalized, oh, I just, I love the world. I'll send my thoughts and prayers out to the world. You go, yeah, that's great, but utterly meaningless. What you need to do is look at the person sitting next to you and go, what need do you have? And do I have the capacity and the ability and the energy from God to meet that need? What you need to do is go to work tomorrow if you've got a job. And you've got to, as you go into your workplace, you, you have a conversation with Jesus that goes something like this. Jesus, um, you've loved me. Now help me pay such close attention to the people around me that I can see the needs that people have and show me the somebody that I can serve tomorrow. 
maybe over and above what your job requires. Maybe just listening to them. Maybe giving them some money. Maybe helping them connect with God. Maybe doing any number of things that will meet their real needs. That's what we got to do. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Now, if you looked sideways at the person sitting next to you when I said that, and you think about the person in your home, perhaps, you go, well, it's, you know, you may be thinking, gee, it's okay, I can try and love my wife or my husband or my kids a little better this week. Yeah, okay, that's awesome. Love it if you could do that. Maybe even love the people here, because actually we're all pretty lovable. At least first week back in person. <laughs> Who does, whose feet does Jesus wash? Who does he eat with? Who's in there that you would, if, if you and I were washing feet, whose feet would you have missed? Judas. Judas. He, he washes, he eats with Judas, and he washes the feet of Judas. Where's Judas gone? I didn't put Judas in this bit of the text. He washes the feet of Judas. And in the text, we see that he knew that Judas was about to betray him. He rolls his sleeves up, and as an act of love in service, he serves his enemy. Like there's no greater enemy that he has. Judas has been with him for three years. They've lived life together. They've done life together. He's been teaching Judas. Judas, Judas was his treasurer. He trusted him with the money. He, he was one of the, he was one of his in-group. And he knows he's about to betray him. And he eats with him and he washes his feet. And then Jesus says to you and to me, hey guys, hey Darling Street Church. I don't just want you to love those who love you back. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to love the difficult people, the hard people. I want you to love the people even who would betray you. Now, by the way, this is why it's very important to recognize that love isn't about a set of feelings. Think of it this way. Jesus is saying, I want you to serve. I want you to seek to do the best I want you to seek and do what will bring about the greatest flourishing, even for those people who have done you harm or who intend to do you harm. Your enemies, you go, oh, oh. You, like we as Christians, we, how do you do that? How do you do that? Oh, here we go. I found Judas, for he knew who was going to betray him. <laughs> there we go. I knew I got Judas in there. Um, this is what Jesus says, right? As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Where do I get the power, the energy to love someone else? Well, I, I just want to do a bit of re revision from last week. Remember last week we talked about God as energy? I don't know if you remember that. Maybe you didn't. Actually, most of you were not on Zoom because you were at home wrangling kids. If you think of God uh, here and you think of um, 
cause and effect. So this is uh, A, B, C. Uh, and you, one of the ways, one of the things we've talked about is God is energy is, that is actualized in the world. God's energy flows into the cause. God works through causes. God's energy flows into the means, the B. God's energy flows directly into people. Okay. So how, how do I love? How do I find the energy to love? Well, I have to receive it first from God. Energy energizes. That's what God does. He pours himself into our lives. He releases into us his divine energy, his power. As the Bible says in Colossians 1, the same energy that raised Jesus from the dead. This is what he releases into us. And what it releases into us is the divine capacity to love in the way that Jesus loved. How? How do I love? How do I love Judas? And it wasn't just Judas, by the way. It was also Peter, because Peter was there, but he was a coward. He was like, yes, I'm all with you, Jesus, and then abandoned him at the first opportunity. And, and so Jesus still loved those guys. Okay, so how do you do that? Step one. Step one. No. That you are loved. Know that you are loved by Jesus. Before you can do anything in the world of any lasting love, before you get jumping into doing, the critical thing to do is to stop and allow Jesus to love you experientially, to welcome you, to accept you, to know that there is nothing in the world that can separate you from this love and service that Jesus has for you. As he says uh, to Peter, unless I wash all of you, you have no part of me. So, so you've got to know that Jesus loves you. Now, Karl Barth, the great theologian, some of you heard of Karl Barth? Hands up if you've heard of Karl Barth. Okay, one, two. I see a nodding head. I see it. Okay, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, uh, Swiss theologian, wrote a million word dogmatic theology. Uh, brilliant, brilliant mind. Towards the end of his life, a journalist said to him, uh, uh, you know, Professor Barth, what is the greatest truth you've learned in all your years of studying? And he said, the greatest thing I've ever learned is what I learned from the knee of my mother when she sang to me, Jesus, and he said this in German, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's the greatest truth in all the world. Changed his life. Here's the thing. Did you know about Karl Barth, one of the greatest theologians who knew in the core of his being that uh, Jesus loved him? He was in all likelihood a bigamist. He had a long-running affair with his personal assistant who moved in and lived with him and his wife. So probably not a bigamist, just a polygamist. At enormous cost and distress to his wife, the great leader and theologian of the church had a part of himself 
that lived massively out of step with what he knew to be true, but he knew that Jesus loved him. Isn't that terrible? Okay, here's the thing about knowing that when Jesus welcomes everyone in the room, he welcomes the Judas and the Peter. Do you know what that says to me? There's a part of you that is Judas. There's a part of you that's a Peter. There are parts of us that are utterly, ah, ah, that we don't, we hate, we don't love. And we struggle to believe that Jesus could love. And the path of growing is understanding that Jesus' love and welcome and embrace is not just for, he doesn't just welcome everyone, he welcomes every part of everyone. So let me, and, and why, what that matters, what that means in church is when we come to church, when we be a family, we're a family where everyone is welcomed and every part of everyone is welcomed because the healing and the power and the energy to change us so that we can love is by letting the love of Jesus welcome and connect and heal everyone and every part of everyone. So here's the thing I'm going to do. This is going to make you all a little uncomfortable and I don't really want a show of hands, but you can uh, get this list from me afterwards. I'm going to put up uh, first a bunch of feelings, then some thoughts and behaviors, and then some relationship patterns on the screen. When I do that, I want you to look through that and think to yourself, do I have any of this in me? And, and am I, do I really understand that this bit of me is actually welcomed in church and welcomed by Jesus? How do you feel about this? Okay, here we go. Here are some feelings. If I was doing this as a diagnostic tool, I'd ask you to, in my office, to tick or circle. What are these feelings do you struggle with? Anxiety, depression, fear, worry, panic, despair, hopelessness, loneliness, isolation, shame, self-hatred, anger at God, spiritual crisis, bitterness, resentment, pride, arrogance, spiritual emptiness, spiritual stuckness, greed, entitlement, jealousy, envy. Like those feelings are not welcome in church. It's a part of you. I won't tell you which bits are there of me, but there's a part of me that feels those things, a bunch of them. What do we do with that? They're very disturbing feelings. Okay, these are the these are the, like the oh, you know, I'll pick one. Let's pick one. Uh, shame. How many of us struggle with shame? How many of you have feelings of shame? For all kinds of reasons. And, and, and you can't admit it and you can't bring it into church. And church becomes this thing where, where you can't have this part because you know what? At the very core of your being, you actually, we think that if God saw this bit of me or anyone saw this bit of me, I would be rejected. I would be excluded. I would not be acceptable. And John 13 says, if Jesus can wash the feet of Judas, he can wash the feet of your shame. And my shame. He knows. He knows your feelings anyway. So let's think about some more. What about some thought and behavior patterns? Maybe, maybe this is part of your life. Have a look at some of these. Negative self-talk. 
Overeating, comfort eating, undereating, restricting, repeat dieting, uh, eating disorders, overworking, compulsive busyness, underworking, laziness, underemployment, overspending, debt, hoarding, oversaving, miserliness, obsessive thoughts, compulsive behavior, under-exercising, sloth, over-exercising, oversleeping, undersleeping, insomnia, drinking for relief, order drunkenness, drugging, sexual acting out, porn affairs, etc., sexual acting in, avoidance, comparison, etc., dissociating, uh, checking out, binge watching, avoidance, isolating, denial, procrastination. Okay, if you, are, if you would discover any of these patterns of thoughts or behavior in you, uh, raise, no. <laughs> We'd all have our hands up. So what do we do with those parts, those patterns? Well, you know what the path of healing is to say, if Jesus can love and wash the feet of Judas, he can accept that part of you, those parts of you that, uh, you, that you just hope no one ever discovers. How about relationship patterns? Anger, rage, outbursts of temper, staying in toxic relationships, sabotaging important relationships, making excuses, blame, lying, covering up, distortion, rescuing others, people pleasing. <sighs> so you know what we do in the church generally with this stuff? We have two strategies. First thing is we say to people, stop it. Stop it. And, and you know what happens when that doesn't work? What's the next strategy? Try harder. So we do stop it and we do try harder. And then we discover that stopping it and trying harder, common religious strategies for trying to manage life don't really work. And the incredible news of Christianity is God, in the first instance, does not say to you, stop it or work harder. Do you know what? The, what is the great news of Christianity? The first thing that God says to you is, I love you and I serve you. And I love those parts of you that you find so deeply distressing and awful and you wish you could do away with. So what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7, he says, uh, and he says, that which I want to do, I don't do. But that which I don't want to do, that's the stuff I do. Super, uber, religious, Jewish person who's trying to live for God and he's going, I'm at war within myself and I have all these parts of me that, that act out and get me behaving and doing stuff that I just don't really want to do. And he says, who will rescue me from this body of sin and death? And in Romans 8, he says, well, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has rescued me because he loves me. That's the first word you need to hear when you contemplate all these parts of yourself is that Jesus says, I love you. I love you. In the gospel, you see, how, does G, how are the broken, sinful, messed up people healed? By connecting with Jesus. That's where the healing is, by connecting with Jesus. How are the broken, sinful, messed up parts of you or me that cause us so much distress, how are they healed? By connecting with Jesus. So if we are to be 
women and men who love others, I want to suggest the most important thing that can happen, the first step in loving others is knowing that you are loved. And, and that seems easy to say, but gosh, it's hard, right? To actually know, to experience on your heart that all the parts of you are welcomed. You bring them into the light of Jesus. And, you, oh. and there's fear in the church. I don't know if any of you are feeling a little scared about me saying this because you go, but, 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 but what if I bring these parts? Oh, Mark, are you giving us, are you telling me I don't have to stop this and I don't have to try harder? Like, but hang on, I, I should be, I should be stopping it. And more important, you should be stopping it. And you should be stopping it. And you should be trying hard. Are you saying that? No, no. I'm, I, I'm saying that stopping it and trying harder won't turn you into a person of love. At the very best, it'll make you proud if you succeed or full of despair when you fail. And if you become proud when you succeed in a religious sense, you'll become a Pharisee and you'll become judgmental and you'll become a hypocrite when you fail. But when I know that Jesus loves every part of me and he loves every part of you, then I can start to have compassion on you and compassion on me and I can start to serve you and I can start to be a person of love. So I... Uh, want to say that what Jesus wants to say to everyone is love everyone and love every part of everyone. Because here's the thing, when our, when our parts act out and do bad stuff, we know it, we don't need to be reminded of it. What we need to know is that Jesus loves us as we are. And then he invites us on a journey of healing and transformation. By the way, this will change how you parent. It'll change how your marriage works. It'll change how you function in the workplace. And it'll change our church. So that is my cue to finish. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, thank you for your extraordinary love that you would love a Judas and a Peter and you would love us all of us with all our parts. And I pray for us as a church that as we enter this new season as a community, as a culture, uh, as we come out of lockdown, that you will give us this incredible sense in our hearts that you love us. You'll free us from pride and despair. You'll set us free from the religious treadmill of stop it and try harder. And you'll bring us into the glorious freedom of the children of God that we know we are loved. We are washed by you. And therefore, and because you first loved us, we can go and love others. And I ask this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.